there's this incredible dynamic that emerges when you're when you're practicing and you take learnings from that and you put it into theory or you develop theory and then pull in your actual real practical experience and then you're sharing with students and that whole cliche which is true of you you as a, a when you teach you learn at the same time and then it just becomes this a very virtuous triangle um, uh, and and it, it generates it's uh, new ideas and takes on a life of, of its own so it's actually it's been very nice Hey guys, welcome back to another episode. So a few episodes back, uh, if you tuned in, you might have listened to the episode where we chatted to Terence Fain. Now, during our chat with Terence Fain, he told us about an amazing human that he works with and someone that he definitely thinks would be contributing a lot of value to similar and uh, alike topics. So, of course, we reached out to this person, and this is Jason, and he's on the show with us today, and we're pretty excited. Jason is also a lecturer at the University of Johannesburg. He has his master's in art and is also in academia writing and publishing, which is quite insane, especially if you go look at some of his uh, dissertations, his works of writing. There are so many, uh, too many for us to actually have fully prepared for this episode. So, <laughs> so you, you said you would read them, <laughs> <laughs> all of them. <laughs> so you will be learning a lot with us today um, and probably after this episode as well. But Jason, welcome to the show. Hello. So maybe to kick us off, let's get into it. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, what you have been doing and what you are currently doing? So um, uh, the, first, well, the first thing is to um, not correct you, but to emphasize in terms of mm -hmm. like what I do and, and, and how I think of myself is I'm like, I'm first and foremost like a practitioner. So mm -hmm. like doing design mm -hmm. and uh, for clients and stuff like that and um, doing it through my own company every now and again through, through other companies um, is is how I started mm -hmm. and it was a very long time ago like 25 years ago and um, I think I, I spent the first part of like the first seven years of my career in agencies in Cape Town mm, yeah. in London you've got some big names on your CV we've seen wow <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I've worked with a lot of Russian people. Um, uh, um, yeah, so so yeah, so that was that was the first bit. Then I came back to I came back to South Africa um, mm -hmm. and started my own company thing. Tried to grow mm -hmm. it, it grew a little bit, 
it then shrunk <laughs> around the time of the mortgage crisis in America and mm. that. And, um, and for, for all sorts of reasons, uh, I, I, I don't know, about 12 years ago, 11 or 12 years ago, I met Terence. Um, I, mm-hmm. I, I, was, I put together um, a meeting where I wanted to bring educationalists, people from marketing, people from I mean, a bunch of different kind of, um, areas together to talk about how we could collaborate to support and build UX in South Africa. And mm-hmm. um, I was recommended to whomever, and then whomever just like sent Terence along. And like Terence arrived, I was like, hmm. And, and I, literally, we got on so well in that meeting and subsequently. And then Terence invited me to help write a course in UX for, for his interaction design course. And um, I've done that for about 13 years with other teaching. And then, and then I, I like, so I'm self-taught in design. I, I studied philosophy and history of art and then copyright. Oh, wow. Copyright. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, so like I, like I didn't even have an honours or anything mm-hmm. and there mm-hmm. was some conference going on there was, there was a colloquium that was going to be held at, at UJ and Terence put me forward to speak at it without asking me <laughs> and, and, and we met up like a week later and he was like dude you've got to write this thing and do this presentation and I was like what do I have to write like what do I have to write it's casual you know? well an academic paper with references and everything and like you need to do research and your point of view and whatnot. I said, like, okay, so we're going to do this together, right? And you still work um, with this guy after he threw you into the deep end like this. <laughs> he must have just read something about my personality, which was yeah. basically he's never going to do it on his own. So I'm just going to have to push him. And, and it was really, um, it, it, it really affected me enormously because I, I loved doing it and... It was it, it was fantastic, and after that, mm. I just wanted to do more of that kind of thinking, that like more rigorous theoretical yeah. thinking, um, uh, to kind of balance practice. Mm. Um, yeah. you know, so, so I was doing both, and then the teaching kind of had had its own amazing stuff about it. Um, mm. So I actually changed my whole my whole kind of like approach to work around that time and, and I started mm-hmm. modeling myself shamelessly, naively, whatever on those kind of modernist uh, architects like Le yeah. and, and Miss van der Rohe. That, they, they were just the references that I had in my head and, and I, because I noticed that they all worked as architects and they practiced and then they were yeah. all taught and they all wrote, kind of wrote their own theory. <clears throat> and I was I was trying to think of how to mature myself in, in in my career, which for me has always been something that I've had to make up because I think you know when you study this stuff, which you couldn't study back when I started, like yeah. nobody taught what they called UX then, which was information architecture and whatnot. So everybody mm-hmm. was just winging it and, and and kind of figuring out how to do it. Um, and when you do go to university, if you study finance, or if you study any of the creative arts, you know, there is a certain um, uh, education that you get in career, you know, like, like how to mm-hmm. move forward conceptually and, and practically um, and how to take 
you know, big steps forward in one's maturing as an artist or a designer, etc. And I didn't have any of that. So I modeled, you know, I thought, okay, well, this seems like a good idea. I'm going to try and balance doing practice and theory and teaching. Mm-hmm. And really actively pursued it. And, and found that there's this, in, I mean, maybe everyone knows this, right? So just stop me if I'm stating the obvious. No. Um, there's this incredible... <laughs> There's this incredible dynamic that emerges when you're mm. when you're practicing and you take learnings from that and you put it into theory or you develop theory and then mm-hmm. pull in your actual real practical experience and then you're sharing with students and mm-hmm. that whole cliche which is true of you you as a, a when you teach you learn at the same time yeah and then it just becomes this a very virtuous triangle so cool. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and and it, it generates it's uh, new ideas and takes on a life of, of its own. So it's actually it's been very nice, and that's kind of what I've been doing. That's amazing. Sure. Um, I, wow. I, I think one of the things that I just want to highlight because um, when we when we initially chatted with Terence, that is one of the things that we 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 sort of um, discussed a little bit. Sort of like this need both for the people practicing to spend a little bit more time with the people mm, in academia, yes. and vice versa, because there is so much mm. that that we can draw from each other. And I think it's so great to see somebody who is doing both because I think there is, there's like a, a kind of relationship that organizations and universities need to build. And maybe a good place to start is by actually having people who are doing both because especially yeah. in these, these sort of like newer fields, you know, I mean, UX being relatively new when you compare it to things like architecture and, and accounting and, and those types of stuff. Um, there's a need for the theoretical aspect to be brought down to reality in a sense, but then also because it's an ever changing and and like rapidly growing field, there's also a need for the practice to kind of explore itself in the theoretical realm. Um, And so Mm. I think it's, 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 it's it's really good to sort of see that you're um, doing both of them in a sense. And maybe that's a great place for, for, for organizations to kind of like start that, that kind of a relationship with universities. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that, that matter. I could talk about it all night. Um, so mm-hmm. it, it, the, 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 you're absolutely right. Um, that the, the classic kind of relationship between, uh, um, academia and practice or theory and practice has, um, uh, it, it isn't, isn't there in the way that it kind of needs to be there. Um, mm. or, or is not as synergized uh, as it could be, or in my, in my opinion, should be, particularly mm. with the digital design. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, but the, the, the two other, so, but it's not just, it's a little bit more than just the, <clears throat> the theory practice uh, relationship. Mm-hmm. It's also teaching. So that's, that's a key thing that comes out of, academia mm. and tradition, mm. right? Yeah. So, like, there are better and worse ways to teach. How do you know if what you're teaching has been properly researched, validated? Are you really just shooting from the hip? And are you teaching just because you're a big name in the community of practice? Or are you, you know, is this real knowledge? Um, mm. You know, whatever. So there's that. And then um, the, the, the fourth aspect, the fourth aspect, the fourth aspect <laughs> is um, uh, community of practice. So, 
all community of that field at large. So you can have communities around practice, you can have communities around academic, etc. But the, the a community of practice is really important so that a field doesn't either stagnate because it's only theory and no practice, and in that mm-hmm. way it will lose relevance in the world or to the world. Yeah. And the opposite is true too. So a practice that exists without theoretical development and, and, and that um, uh, closing of the loop also stands to disappear um, uh, mm. because it, it's because it doesn't do any of those old-fashioned things like storing knowledge. Um, mm-hmm. and, and this is where the problem lies. So the, the, the case in point is that people who know me know that I'm like, crazy about information architecture. Mm-hmm. This is the most uncool thing to say if you do digital design or UX or anything like that because people are like... Yeah. No one cares about information architecture. It was like a big thing in the early, late 90s, early 2000s when my hair wasn't growing. Mm-hmm. And anybody still banging on about that is, is kind of just hasn't kept up with the times. Because if you did, you would know that IA kind of became UX and interaction design kind of departed from yeah. IA and wanted to become its own thing. And I think one of the things that was interesting about chatting with you is that it's something that originated in the idea of sort of like libraries and sort of the ordering of literature. Mm. Um, because, you know, when we think about UX today mm. and we think about I, uh, information architecture, we think about it from the sense of ordering digital information. But I, I think especially if you sort of were educated in, in the area of design during this current time, you sort of assume that IA came up with UX design. But in a sense, it sort of came up before when it was simply just the ordering of information as books and as, you know, papers. And so that's something that I found to be quite um, interesting because I didn't know that and literally until speaking to you. But then, in a sense, it's it's almost logical because books came before computers. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 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 so part of that, there's a nice... Uh, um, very readable um, journal paper called um, The History of Information Architecture by Andrea Rizmini. Mm-hmm. And it details kind of the different places and fields from which it, it, it emerged. In, in its original, well, in one of its earlier forms, it was something associated with um, uh, Richard Saul Wurman, who is one of the kind of fathers of information information design mm-hmm. and has published millions, millions of thousands of books and also the creator of the TED Talks. And, um, uh, and he's, 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 a, he's a strange character. He's, he's, in a way, he's kind of sort of culty, but he's very, very big in America and, and maybe mm-hmm. not as well known outside of America. But extremely famous in America, um, and he he made the original link. He was originally an architect, mm-hmm. and in the sixties or seventies, can't, can't remember. He started talking about the idea of information architecture, responding even that early to information overload and 
Because that's about the time the data, uh, databases started being invented and computers were doing things. Like that. Mm. Um, and, and that was kind of like one line. Um, but it, it became like a web or an internet thing in the mid-90s-ish um, with the publication of a book that was written by two guys who, who came from a library and information science background. Mm-hmm. And, and their take on it was very much that, you know, adapting a way of thinking about libraries and books that where the core concern was information or data storage and retrieval. Yeah. Mm. So like, and for the web, that's yeah. in the very early days of the web, that was some necessary thinking Huge. that needed to yeah. be done. You know, how, how do you put stuff yeah. in servers and what's the best way to get it back? Because the affordances and the structure of the technology of browsers enabled you to, like, it wasn't like there was a Dewey Decimal system in terms of all that to do the same way. Like, oh, like each and every website or experience has to be like uniquely, you have to create a unique Dewey Decimal system, mm-hmm. you know, for, for mm-hmm. um, and, and unfortunately, the, the, that, that kind of information architecture is, a, is, is really more like an applied science yeah. than a design mm-hmm. um, yeah. approach. And, and not all information architects at the time kind of self-identified or did their IA design like those library information science people. Mm-hmm. So yeah. myself, as an example, um, so I always had a more designing approach to doing IA, mm-hmm. which didn't kind of necessarily therefore make it UX or therefore made it interaction design. It was, no, I was thinking very deeply and very carefully about how I could be more or less creative or effective or whatever with structure, how you link pages out, etc. And um, and that kind of IA got, got lost. Yeah. Um, uh, because this other kind of this library thing just became dominant. And, and the community practice uh, was not very open-minded in the transition from Web 1 to Web 2 mm. in broadening its ideas about what, what information architecture could be. Yeah. And so, Jason? Even more so when we went into pervasive computing and it was like, um, okay, yeah. now we're thinking about information across multiple channels. Again, yeah. it was like, no, IA is just about websites, it's just about digital, and it's just about library information science. And so it kind of dropped off the table <laughs> as a conversation mm-hmm. in yeah. any creative sense. So yeah. does, that, does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, definitely. and it's, it's, it's quite sad. And, you know, you mentioned earlier as well, unfortunately, when you speak to a lot of creatives and especially designers or UX designers, they either have no idea what, where or what information architecture is or any context of it, or they just don't care. And there's, like you mentioned, only a very few people who are driving this methodology. But I want to ask you, as someone who, who really loves it, why should we care? What's the, um, what, how, how would it help us? It doesn't really. I, I just do it too much. It's like my shtick. You know, it's like I'm trying to like remain relevant. Even I don't really believe. Um, no. Um, so, 
<laughs> another sp- a space that I missed out when describing mm. this mm. kind of thing was um, the space of human-computer interaction and usability. Okay. So it had an awful lot of relevance um, in that space because mm. like that basic simple argument that if you can't find stuff, you know, if you can't find what you're looking for on a website or even in an app, whatever, um, uh, then your product fails. Um, uh, made more tangible in examples like e-commerce um, and um, like you won't sell shit. So there are a whole bunch of really basic usability-oriented reasons why even if information architecture hasn't progressed in a particularly interesting way, mm-hmm. just for digital objects, it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that Oh, it's old, so we can just forget about it. It's, like yeah. it. it's a basic thing that needs to be taught in every single course. Yeah, foundation. It's like teaching students color theory every year or mm. teaching students the basics of composition in painting or mm. something like that. Um, you know, like you, and, and, and yeah, like there are courses where, like they don't, where IA is just not being taught. Mm-hmm. Like it's bits of it, like are sneaking through, and like maybe some usability, and bits are sneaking through, and interaction design, and, and interaction design has been you know, fairly um, um, emphatic about you know interaction design is information architecture, something that you do as part of interaction design, mm-hmm. um, uh, which is you know um, a, a really highly problematic thing that they did, but yeah. regardless of that. Um, uh, it, it, it needs to carry on being taught, and it literally is about fourth the face of the planet. Um, the, the the community is tiny, and it, it's lost relevance. Um, even though that stuff is important, you know why it's important in in other ways is because you can scale all of that kind of thinking mm. about best practice or usability up into mm. like the pervasive space um, and more yeah. like service design space, multi-channel yeah. integration or cross-channel design, um, where there is some form of explicit information movement or journeys that you want people to take, etc., mm-hmm. um, which is becoming more and more of a thing. And mm-hmm. even doing like uh, stuff for like your regular corporate, you know, inside your corporate organizations, you've got all of their data is digital, mm-hmm. right? It's, it, it, it's all running through service, except for banks, because they still use paper. Um, um, it was big. Um, yeah. Uh, um, and so, like, you've got that system, and then you've got the user's world, and the user's world mm-hmm. becoming increasingly connected by like, all your information is your devices and whatnot, and somehow these will be meet, and then you meet at different times in different places. And there's a role for information architecture there. Um, and there's a, a type of IA um, that addresses that, it's called pervasive information architecture, and that hasn't been picked up, you know, nearly, it, like, you know, it, it definitely pushed the field forward, um, but it wasn't recognized either by that kind of incumbent IA community or practice, or 
the likes of the service designers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, a lot mm-hmm. of the time, you know, just end up in these ludicrous situations where you kind of come forward and say, hey, this is, you know, information architecture does this, this, and this, and this is how you can apply it in, mm-hmm. in a cross-channel environment. And people go, that's not IA, that's service design. And it's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, That's exactly okay. what I was about to say. It's, it's not almost like it's lost relevance, because if I think about my job, I couldn't, for the life of me, think that it's lost relevance. It's in almost it's there. It's in every brain. second day. Exactly. It's almost just mm. it's been inwoven and embedded in what we call other things or how we do other things. But it's n- no longer um, a focused or, um, yeah, a focused discipline, recognized discipline by itself. Mm-hmm. So the heads up is that it never was. So, mm. or at least... Okay. With my understanding of what one might mean when you when you use the word yeah. discipline, so when yeah. you say discipline to me, it is something which exists somehow in academia. So yes. research supports it, and yeah. um, that you know research supports it and develops it. It can claim knowledge as opposed mm-hmm. to opinion. Um, it can store that knowledge. It can distribute that knowledge. It includes its own internal mechanisms of validation and challenging stuff. Um, yeah. So, like, double-blind peer review processes and things like mm-hmm. that. Um, it, can, it can provide a space for a certain type of discussion and argument and envisioning, which practice can't do. So, yeah. they're both talking about the same thing, but... Mm. There's often this view of a trade-off, you know, or, or like, which one's better? And it, and it really mm. isn't like that. It, 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 it's quite simply that practice can go somewhere on, on the topic that mm. discipline cannot or research or theory cannot. But mm-hmm. research and theory, uh, um, research theory can go somewhere that practice does not. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and they complement each other. And when they complement mm. each other in that kind of like nice eternity symbol of, of mm. um, things moving backwards and forwards, then you have a dynamic, growing, vibrant field. And, yeah. and so this thing, exactly as you say, Stephanie, this, this thing of uh, um, IA just ending up being this tacit, implicit mm-hmm. thing that is in everything else, well, that's fine. And if that is enough for for the field to carry on, or maybe the field doesn't need to carry on, or whatever. But the point is that it might drop off, and it is. So if we, hmm. so one of the things that that happened was IA was never a discipline. It had these conferences every year, and the same old thing was spoken about. And there was very very little to no research being done, mostly in the two thousands. So it just kind of mm-hmm. stagnated. And then, like, it was just really bad timing. Um, Web 2 came out, and IA wasn't quick enough to kind of say, no, there's still IA there. It's not Mm. just interactions. Just because they're web apps doesn't mean there's no IA. It was stupid. They they were so kind of into a limited definition that they weren't adaptable enough to, like, expand. Mm -hmm. And then there was mobile, and, and we have... Luke Roblowski saying things like mobile first, 
which is stupid. Sorry, um, and, um, uh, and 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 kind of smaller interactions. So like, not as much information as you'll find on the website. You know, on a mobile website, you're focusing on core features, functionality, and content. Mm-hmm. So, and then there was this kind of like, well, because it's so small, <laughs> we don't need information architecture because like it's only big information that you know big data masses that need. Why is that? And yet. The number of like mobile apps and, and websites that have been designed for mobile have got should I or it's ungraded or it's not what yeah, it could be, yeah. or they're breaking mm-hmm. fundamental rules and users are still going through the same problem. So it's always the same, yeah. you know. And um, someone else I remember. Um, and, and 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 so you know um, the 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 it will and, and it will continue. It, it'll only grow in relevance. I mean, the more. Mm. The more our lives become digitized, the more the world becomes digitized, the more IA is going to become necessary Need rather it. than less. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. The, 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 the other reason, and all of those arguments are like basic 101, either usability or design basics. Like a cup where, you know, if I sit and drool, you know, like just. It's been designed mm. in such a way that I can't drink it without spilling all over myself. You know, I'll be kind of going, no, it's a shit cup. Um, yeah. Uh, it's, it, you know, all of the, everything I've been talking about has been like that. But there is another aspect to information architecture, which is, or a few aspects, which are more humanistic or, mm-hmm. as Terence was discussing, anthropological or, or kind of cultural. So- and there is another realm of it which is more about meaning and philosophy and that's where i want to go um next because um you know before before we kind of got to got to this um discussion one of the things that we were hoping to kind of cover was the idea of um addiction and where it fits into the role of a designer but before we go there there was one idea that you spoke about in your your keynote at the i think it's a world information architecture summit and it was this concept of i think that's what it's called um, I'll, I'll you once sense I making, yeah. the, the idea of sense making versus meaning making. And I think um, that's a, a concept that might sound a little bit confusing, but when it's explained well, I think is extremely valuable. So can you maybe talk th- through that a little bit? Oh, can't we show the video? <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm joking. Um, okay, so... We're just a hyperlink somewhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Get the screen over there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, James, you'll put it over here, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> put it on my face. <laughs> um, okay. So the 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 main uh, kind of proposition, like the the why you should do IA or use IA. Um, from a practice point of view, is that it, it, it's meant to assist with users who are interacting with stuff. Um, mm-hmm. It's meant to help users make sense of the interface, how information has been structured, etc., so that you can optimize their experience, make it intuitive, uh, make it enriching, uh, make it engaging, all those kind of good things. 
Um, but it's all premised mm. on this idea of sense making um, or mm-hmm. um, understanding. So yeah. that the what they like to talk about is uh, making the world a better place because it's easier for people to understand things. Now mm-hmm. that is th- th- that's fine. Cool. Um, I- I've got mm-hmm. thoughts on it and opinions on it, but that's going to sidetrack this. Mm-hmm. That line of reasoning and that kind of proposition is quite interesting because it brings, that is very much what the library and information science thing yeah. was saying in its own way. But what it does is it yeah. also enables bringing Richard Solwell and, and information design and a lot of that theory back to, it brings them back together. Um, mm. Because women were saying the same thing. So women were saying in information design, it's also about that. Yeah? Mm. But he had a much more designing approach and he was exploring, applying you know, classic architecture principles to, to it. what at the time was, uh, you know, it was 2D stuff like books and whatnot. But that thinking, mm. you know, people are starting to build that back into information architecture and digital um, landscape. So it's significant and it's important, whatever. My contention with it is that um, is that in the sciences mm-hmm. and, and, and even like quite a lot of the social sciences, sense making and meaning making kind of are interchangeable terms. So the idea that when you create a structure that is embedded within any object, but we can stick to digital objects. The idea that that structure is serving simply the purpose of making an end user's life better by providing sense making kind of doesn't, is unable to acknowledge that there could be some kind of active meaning making going on mm-hmm. implicitly or tacitly. Mm-hmm. And this is that sciencey view. And, and even though, like, Woman wasn't a sciencey guy, um, uh, architect um, it's it, 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 it's really like a it's it's a view from the world of art and and it's much mm. closer to things like postmodernism the idea that when we design and make stuff that there is inherently meaning in what you're doing in the art world it will be explicit because artists trade that you know they're stuck in trade is meaning um, yeah but in other things, like the way cities are structured or like the way menus are laid out, you know, you put critical theory on that and it's like you've got feminists and decolonization and LGBTQT, mm. um, Marxism and everything kind of going, there's plenty of meaning in there and not just that, it's really evil. Um, and most of the time it is evil, um, even though, you know. And that's the issue, right? Um, uh, mm. Because... A lot of the time it is evil, and a lot of the time it's a bunch of people who are naive and don't even realize that they can be perpetuating meanings in making assumptions about the way information is grouped, because implied in that stuff is meaning. I quickly want to pause and just on what you're saying, dumb it down a little bit and tell me if I'm explaining this correctly, just to make people understand when you say, when we do sense-making... 
We are sometimes not aware that meaning making happens because of the process of sense making. So if we think about, I have um, 40 dishes in a restaurant. I'm making sense of those 40 dishes by maybe organizing them to make a menu. That's my sense making activity to take those 40, put them in different categories or just organize it to make sense of the 40 dishes. And in that process, I have now made sense of it by making starters, mains, desserts. Now that's the sense making. But if we have starters, mains, desserts, the meaning we derive from that is cool. There's three courses. The meaning could be that starters is always a preceding dish before mains. Dessert is always following a main. And that's where the meaning making happens in effect, because of the sense making, kind of, yeah. Did I did I explain that? Yeah, and, and 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 there there are there there's certain. You see, a lot of the time um, we don't recognize the meaning making um, mm. because it is so yeah. close to our own culture. So mm. it's quite easy to kind of say, wouldn't it be weird to go to a restaurant which had desserts first and. Um, main course last yeah yeah and and then next thing you find out yeah but that's how the japanese do it or whatever and and so <laughs> that the, 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 the we don't you know we don't necessarily make a big deal out of the meaning of the way that we do things um because mm-hmm. it is from our culture but mm-hmm. let's look at south africa we can kind of go hmm, that just smacks of europe you know, beginning, <laughs> first course, second course, third course. And before, you know, white colonialists came to South Africa, I don't think native uh, non-white tribes ate like that. And yeah. they would have different, they would have had different the rituals. And, and, and <laughs> yeah, habits around, around what was eaten, how it was eaten, what the rituals were around those mm-hmm. things. Yeah. And... I gave an example to uh, one of the students that, that I was working with earlier on today. I said, it's, it, it's quite interesting because if, if Western culture believed that um, human spirits uh, could be found um, after they die, transferred into animals, it would be a reason, like it gives meaning to the idea that if you kill it, when you kill an animal, you should say a prayer. And then I was like, because like in America or even here, you know, when they kill 7,000 or 10,000 cows in a day, if you got mm. the, 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 the CEO of the company to, like, stand right at that point where the cow gets a bolt through its head, and he had to say a prayer for each one, he'd have to say 10,000 prayers in a day. And he would, he'd it, he would feel very viscerally what is really going on. You know, mm-hmm. and so there's an, you know, I, I just those, I, I hope those, I mean, I'm being silly or facetious or maybe I'm not, but you, in those examples, I, hopefully you can see what I mean. Um, yeah. About yeah. The way meaning manifests yeah. in these things. So. Yeah. And like you explained how we perpetuate meaning by carrying it on and on and not changing the meaning making that we're doing. And. We have power, right? That's a very powerful thing 
if it's used intentionally or even when it's used unintentionally. Well, well, well precisely. So um, it, 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 it speaks to a really imp important part of design that if we, if, we, mm -hmm. if we don't know how to deconstruct digital stuff at that level, then it always remains tacit, hidden mm -hmm. inside the yeah. object. Um, which means that that perpetuation carries on. Um, mm -hmm. It also means we miss the opportunity for it to be used in new, creative, transformatively useful, interesting ways. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it, it's important for both those reasons. So any time anything is designed, um, there, there are a few options. Um, that the, the, the meanings that exist in the world are taken through the design process and unquestioned and continued. Or yeah. those meanings are taken into the design process and they are unknowingly changed and they go into the mm -hmm. world. Or it can be mm -hmm. a conscious thing. Like we pay attention to yeah. that and we make decisions. Like, is this right or wrong? Do we want, do we want to keep that meaning in the world? Or do we mm. want to change it? And, <clears throat> and so it, 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 it's about integrity and it's about self-reflection and it's about, it's, a, it's just a whole level, a whole different level of world changing that, that mm -hmm. design really needs to embrace because the trajectory that we're on right now is, looks exactly like the early stages of the last industrial revolution where you've got big businesses and technologists so a big business and people who know how to make trains kind of exploiting that and pushing it as far as it can go so when your railway tracks can't go any further from europe or america and you hit the sea you've got to go into africa right and then you carry on laying down your railroad tracks all the way through africa all the way down to the south so that you can get the gold and the diamonds, right? And we all know how that turned out. Um, and, and we're seeing exactly the same thing. I mean, this is literally um, being, this is what we're seeing about Google and Facebook and all of those guys. So you've got mm -hmm. business guys who've got, you know, running with their profit capitalist agendas, and then you've got technologists who are just like so in love um, with the technology. Um, and, and, and you don't have culture or social agendas and things like that. It's now UX and human-centered design and service design. Kind of going, we're going to try rectify this, right? You've got to include design. Yeah. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to test with users, we're going to co-design with users, all this stuff. Great. Fantastic. And then there is this thing which everybody, which nobody knows about because it's now just being absorbed into... Mm -hmm. Service yeah. design, interaction design, you know, it's just information architecture thing yeah. as well. I don't care what it's called and I don't care um, uh, where it sits as long as it is being done and somebody is thinking about it and caring mm -hmm. about it. It happened for me, it happens to make a lot of sense to you know, continue a certain uh, uh, yeah. history which, which, which pre exists. But if you know, think about it. If we don't have a consciousness about that stuff or know how to deal with it in these 
kind of digital landscapes and things like that, it's going to get ugly. Yeah. Um, And so a great great example of information architecture, um, which other people have written about and whatnot, is if you look closely at the way the apartheid government used classification as a way to, as as actually the, 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 the... the underpinnings of the entire structure yeah, of the entire legal structure yeah. of apartheid that, that sat on top. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference between black and white people is the width of your nose or um, uh, whether you can stick a pen inside the person's mm-hmm. hair and it falls out. These are like color of skin. These things are like ways to categorize people. And you guys know about the stories, you know, um, it, it, it's part of our cultural history. Um, like, if you were a black person and you looked white, you could maybe actually get away with not walking around with a passport <laughs> and not being stopped, mm. or vice versa, etc., etc. And we see this in 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 in, <laughs> in all successful um, uh, dictatorial or fascist, you know, systems. Uh, like if you look sure. at. Um, yeah. The Third Reich and Hitler and the Nazis, mm-hmm. it, was, it was the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like, Jews are defined by big noses. and <laughs> Information architecture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Such a weapon. Full on. <laughs> a political You've got no idea. Okay, so anything that... <laughs> That's fully, fascinating. Fully, fully. I've never looked at it from that yeah, perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is exactly what it's about. Yeah. So it's everywhere and it's always been... Yeah. It is, it is, it is yes. an integral part of how humans are in the world. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. My argument is that it, it, it has always been in the background of human, social, cultural life, and it's being foregrounded mm-hmm. now in the same way that information is being foregrounded because of the internet. Mm. Information has also always yeah. been yeah. in the background. Um, but because of the nature of the technology that we're dealing with and, and, and things like that, it's now foregrounded. Um, and we see lots of like fields um, emerging. So there's, like, an, there's a whole field of mm-hmm. philosophy called the philosophy of information, which has emerged. And, and you kind of mm-hmm. go, well, why now? Well, it's because it's become yeah. foregrounded. So there's, there's a few things that I want to try and tie together to set up the next part of the conversation. Um, and so one of the things that we kind of went into was this sort of idea of meaning making and the fact that um, if it's not consciously taken into account during the design process, you can perpetuate things that you might not be aware of or you might be intentionally perpetuating things that that um, that you you are aware of. But I think one of the things that's interesting about um, about that, and it's sort of something that we sort of um, discussed beforehand off air, off air was this idea that um, when you actually take, when you stop taking, um, when you take things from the perspective of the, or when, when we order information, so if we, take, if we take Stephanie's example about the restaurant and the cups, right? If we sort of just move forward without taking a meaning making into conscious account, we perpetuate things. But there's another way to sort of approach it where we actually take on the challenge 
from the perspective of the decisions that enables us that it enables us to make and it sort of allows us to bring together different perspectives um in a way that sort of takes everything into account and you know when we spoke when you spoke about um you know the 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 colonists in South Africa or the the German um or the the German context it was sort of like uh, this information architecture was used to separate people but there's this different approach that actually takes everybody in together and uses meaning making to bring everyone together and i think that's a very powerful idea and i think maybe it's something that that's important to speak about because as you sort of mentioned it's those who are um the the designers and the people who are specializing in this um in this field who are taking on the responsibility to actually bring the people together in how we 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 approach um both the platforms that we work on and the the project that we work on in this digital space and then we kind of chatted a little bit about um off air about how you can almost think about addiction as the erosion of meaning and i thought when you when you sort of said that i thought it was extremely striking mm. because i've i've never thought about it in that way but when you sort of think about a person's life and the effect that um any kind of addiction be it you know on the hectic side of, mm. like you know um substance abuse all the way up until being addicted to your phone you know it's sort of like mm. when you sort of get into that cycle all the things that might have been meaningful all of the things that might have brought the holistic aspects to your life start to fall away and it's sort of just it's sort of re reshuffled how i think about what we're doing as designers because you can start to now think about design outside of the space of digital information outside of the space of even you know books and physical information and you can start to think about it as how humans relate to each other mm. and i just thought that was like a profound way to think about it and <laughs> and i think um if if you could maybe talk a little you can sort of pick on from where whichever angle you'd like but talk a little bit on that cool so um uh, uh the reason why we're talking about the relationship between information architecture and addiction is because that was the um the the research project that i that i took on in my masters mm-hmm. which I, i finished quite recently um and and that was looking at the relationship between information architecture design yeah. and wicked problems and i needed an example of a wicked problem to demonstrate certain theoretical ideas that i had going on and i chose addiction and i chose addiction because it was very close to home because i'm a recovering addict and i was having certain problems uh which i'll come back to of a particular kind um which mm-hmm. which i felt could be addressed um pragmatically through design um and then um what was going to say so okay so so that's kind of how mm. how the, these these conversations link in and the 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 explanation that i think i gave you when we were chatting about the blind was um or of error was um kind of explaining uh, uh to you or trying to um help uh share what it what it's like mm-hmm. to be an addict and and what happens 
So addiction, as you say, whether or not it's substance mm-hmm. abuse, misuse, dependence, or whether it's internet addiction, whatever, it doesn't matter. And uh, the, the, the neurobiological process that, that kicks in is one where um, over a period of time, um, certain chemical reactions um, are, are happenings are able to take over the, 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 the normal human uh, functions mm-hmm. that we associate with the prefrontal cortex. Mm-hmm. It's over there. Um, the mm-hmm. prefrontal cortex allows us to be rational, right? So when, um, uh, when somebody becomes unable to stop themselves from using, which is quite late in addiction, um, because it kind of goes using mm-hmm. and then misusing and then mm-hmm. abusing and then dependence. In the first instance, it, it usually takes quite a long time for most people to become full-blown like addicts where they can't, you know, uh, where, where, where they can't, uh, mm-hmm. where, where it's no longer about willpower or, or character. Like literally your brain is hijacked. Um, uh, the, mm-hmm. That downward slope kind of that, that one goes through is a process of um, losing all the things which otherwise people, you know, in, in, in a normal uh, kind of functioning brain mm-hmm. would never dream of losing. So you lose your job uh, and then you lose your children and your wife or your husband. And then you lose your money and then mm-hmm. you lose your shelter and then you lose your sense of self because you can't remember there's a, there's a great line in a brilliant film about addiction, um, Leaving Las Vegas, mm. uh, Nicholas Cage, and I forget her name. It is one of the best films I've ever seen about addiction. Um, and and Nicholas, there's, a, there's a scene where Nicholas Cage says, I can't, I can't remember anymore whether or not I started drinking because my wife left me or whether my wife left mm. me because I'd started drinking. And it, it, it's this, I hope I didn't just repeat myself, but, um, and you, you, you just feel that, like, that, mm. that utter emptiness of, like, dude, that's not something yeah. that you can forget. It, 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 you know, and you really, it's like, and so, and so what is, this is, this is kind of what I meant by, mm. by that thing of an erosion of meaning. And, and those, like, humans are hardwired to, desire and need meaning to be in and uh, it's 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 one of the big things that um, that like this kind of advanced capitalism the world's going to end consumerism ecological crisis um, has has managed in a really really interesting way um, because every like my lighter or whatever it is um these things uh, and that this the, the system of consumerism um, wouldn't work if there was inherent meaning. Like if there was if there was an acknowledged mm. internal meaning to this. When it's disposable, I don't mm. I don't think twice before throwing it away. But I'm not going to throw away my leather jacket that was handed down to me by my uncle mm-hmm. who 
partner, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, because it's got meaning. So all you need to do is start talking, making yeah. things with more meaning. And people mm-hmm. will be, they'll be reluctant just mm-hmm. to keep mm-hmm. chucking it away. So it's very convenient for design in the 20th century to be positioned as something that is instrumental. The meaning of a cut yeah. is defined by how it's used. Okay. I'm going off track here, but I'll come back. Um, it, 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 that's how, like, um, uh, uh, Sauron or Darth Vader was, was able to you know, gain so much t- uh, territory in the 20th century. Because it was, you know, it didn't make sense to say that a cup has internal meaning. According to information architecture, it does. It's just tacit. Right? And so branding, what branding does is it, it puts a meaning inside the cup that isn't true, but it's like just enough meaning to make you want to buy it and keep buying it from one brand versus another. But it's not that meaningful mm. that you care about chucking it away. That's a good point. Yeah. So um, uh, that's, you know, kind of, kind of how that stuff works. Um, the, the addiction thing is, it, 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 it's, it, there's a shift in perspective that's happened and it's, it's been over the past sort of 10, mm-hmm. maybe 15 years that the view of um, uh, the war against drugs and, and that there is something character-based, moral-based about addicts that separate them from other mm-hmm. people who are not addicts. And like in South Africa, it's very, very big um, uh, mm-hmm. because a man must be a man. And if you are an addict, then it's just because you're not strong yeah. enough to give it up. Right? Um, the idea that other stuff could be going on is kind of mm-hmm. um, not present. And that is supported by things like Nancy Reagan and Ronald Reagan declaring the war mm-hmm. on drugs in the 1980s. As far as I'm concerned, drugs have always been around. They're awesome. But, yeah, I mean, uh, mm-hmm. try not to misuse. <laughs> um, uh, so, Okay, so the meaning aspect is, is well, you know, one, one way to, I'll try to communicate relationship by, by, by saying, use meaning as a way to kind of start entering a discussion mm-hmm. about addiction. So if we are saying things like, when we design things, and these could be systems, these could be posters, these could be products, these could be organizations, these could be Mm-hmm. legal systems, whatever, right? Um, if there is a, a, um, a, a tacit meaning associated mm-hmm. with addict, like what is an addict, and socially, culturally, we've got all these ideas, then then what what builds up around that meaning are systems that correspond, mm-hmm. right? So um, if somebody sees a person uh, drunk on the side of the street, for 10 days running, they do they call the hospital or do they call the police? Yeah. They call the police. Or if they see a junkie, you know, like somebody shooting up uh, in some part of town, do they call the hospital or do they call the police? Okay? Mm-hmm. So that is an issue of meaning. Okay? Because the one view is that it's illegal and therefore it's bad and we don't care if that person ends up being incarcerated, which in South Africa is 
like just something you don't want to have, have happen to you yeah. um, for its own reasons, let alone then being an addict in jail where you can't, you know, get your fixes and then you have to clean mm. up in jail. Just like that. Um, the other view is this is a medical health problem and it's better dealt with by doctors. And, like and unfortunately, that's also not like the full story. Um, uh, there is a massive social part to it, um, in my opinion, and based on the research that I've done. In fact, I really believe that addiction is a, a, a mm -hmm. social problem, first and foremost. Like it, it can become a neurobiological science thing, and it can become a health problem. I mean, most people don't like die of addiction. Uh, well, I mean, loads of people overdose, but most people die of stuff related to it. So a car accident that happens, driving drunk and the person happen, just happens to be drunk every night, um, mm -hmm. or uh, liver failure, or all sorts of things, lung-related stuff. Um, uh, so um, the social, like, it's really interesting to look at how alcohol functions versus illicit yeah. drugs or, or banned um, illegal drugs. But alcohol is, um, in its pure form, like 100% alcohol will kill you if you drink it. it. It is like the most dangerous drug. It's much more dangerous mm -hmm. than cocaine or heroin or any of those things. So how come it's like all over the place? Um, uh, yeah. Like how does that work, right? Um, it works because in the first instance, not because of law and the laws around it, it works because of social regulation. So, so if you've got a friend and like at university and your friend starts, um, uh, has a bad breakup, right? And she or he has got a broken heart and there's other stuff going on. Like they were back in school, maybe some whatever, there's some, you know, it's more than just the breakup and maybe. And you notice that this friend of yours is drinking more and more. Um, we tend not to just mm. leave that friend mm. to carry on doing They also tend not to be, like, so ashamed of it, at least in the mm. early stages, that they hide it. So they'll be at the bar with all of their friends and they're just drinking too much. And what friends tend to intervene. Friends will say, you drank, drank quite a lot last night. Are you, are you, is everything cool with you? And then, you know, yeah. maybe the person will kind of get pissed off and like, ah, oh, no, like, what are you talking about? You get drunk all the time, you know, they might get defensive or, or whatever. But, but the, yeah. the, 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 it can be broached, you know, the, the, the conversation can be had. And generally, that's mm -hmm. how a lot of people get by, right? Um, and uh, in the, with the use of alcohol. So before it gets to like crazy out of hand stages, there's this kind of social regulation. And what makes it more tricky with things like heroin or whatever is that, um, you do it yeah. in the shadows uh, because it's illegal and because you do it in the shadows uh, that yeah. intervention is, is not available um, there are all sorts of scenarios so in the scenario of mobile phone addiction um, you know we don't really talk about it because um, everyone's doing it mm. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. so you know uh, so all that I think there's like what I'd like to just do a little bit is tie in what we spoke about a little um, previously into what you've mentioned now. Um, 
because you know we spoke about this idea of if we don't um actively think about about um the use of meaning making with these types of wicked problems we perpetuate things that we <clears throat> things that we might not otherwise want to and i think this is a great example of that because by for example keeping a specific drug or um substance illicit we are actually perpetuating per- perpetuating the situation where a person has to hide their usage of it and so in a sense they deal with it on their own mm. where we could instead mm. look at it from a different perspective or mm-hmm. or they don't yes yeah. the case <laughs> fair enough um but we could look at it from the different perspective as as you sort of mentioned as a societal problem and think about it in a inclusive manner because you know um the 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 other thing that you sort of mentioned um when we were having this discussion earlier was this idea of looking at addiction from the perspective of every single person that that's involved because as as you'd mentioned you know the way that the addict thinks about addiction versus the way that the family thinks about addiction versus the way that the police thinks about addiction versus the way that the, that the hospital thinks about addiction is all different and in a sense it's all different problems but it's the same thing um and you know i mean mm. it's addiction for me is something that's also very close to home um both personally and some some of the people around my circles and especially when you transition from that space of being an outsider to addiction like when it's something that's outside of your realm of experience and then it sort of becomes a part of your realm of experience and then you sort of start to realize that what you thought it was is nothing close to the truth like it's it's not even in the same universe and it's only through this idea of sort of intentionally not propagating the implicit aspects and actually breaking it down into its constituting parts and aiming to resolve it from that perspective and one of the one of the sort of like things that i just wanted to include um or maybe like a different example is about um uh psychedelics because for a very long time psychedelics had a defined place in societies you know it was in a sense illegal for the normal community to do it but then you had the shamans or the the sort of the people who are kind of like a little bit more spiritual whose role in the society is to explore these things and to explore these aspects that are maybe taboo for the normal person but provide a foundational part of the holistic mm. community but when we look at now you know the modern like as things sort of progress one day we sort of decide oh this is too dangerous and we just need to make it completely illegal and the assumption is that you know the law is going to do what the law is supposed to do and it's going to prevent everybody from using it but instead all that happens is it becomes demonized and the people who maybe might have done it out in the open might have chose to take the route of the shaman now have to go and hide in a corner and sort of do their thing and and kind of like explore it without any societal support and i think the example that you gave about you know how how we treat alcohol is a great example because as as you mentioned alcohol is so dangerous yet we've managed to imperfectly incorporate it into our society but much better than a lot of the other illicit um or illegal drugs mm-hmm. um and i mean even the if you think about marijuana even and like in um countries like the the netherlands that are actually trying again to reincorporate it you find that over time making it legal but um uh changing its meaning <laughs> yeah when you, essentially when you make it legal mm. you change the meaning that's attached to it and maybe you can mm. instead of calling the police you can call the hospital when there is an issue and i think it's just so important that that you sort yeah. of br- tie in that previous 
our previous discussion into this because as you mentioned it is a wicked problem and it can't go un- unaddressed um yeah 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 man i just want to say that even simple problems are wicked problems it's just that we are framing them small so the you know that we the world is one gigantic wicked problem in my view and um we simply we simply frame things at different kind of levels of abstraction and on a di- on you know different mm-hmm. continuums of complexity um and and that's got to do with all sorts of things like budget time appetite understanding meaning mm-hmm. um etc um that i think that's really important because otherwise people kind of think uh you know if information architecture is useful in as i'm arguing uh, if information architecture is useful for solving wicked problems then it's not yeah. really relevant for yeah. mobile phones you know yeah apps and yeah websites you know? um but it is um because it's a similar thing it almost follows a similar life to that view of of complexity and and, and wicked problems it's it's Yeah. Yeah, we sort of travel together um uh, it, because no, it's all really I mean trick that's for me the mind. highlight of this whole conversation we've had the past hour or so is the fact that it can be dumbed down to the simplest thing as the meaning you create for your day tomorrow mm. like the things you're doing tomorrow morning. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. is the power you have to change your day or your week by the sense making and the meaning making. um actions that you you do the in, how intentional you are about that so yes definitely agree it's that you put that really really nicely and it and it, it's it's quite interesting to think about like religion um so i'm I, i'm i'm jewish whatever i don't believe in it on the world was jew but i know about jewish customs and things and um it's quite you know there's something quite lovely in the idea that you know not that I do this but in the idea that that at the end of every week on Friday evening you can do whatever you want mm. in your life you can go crazy party and whatever but on Friday nights you kind of come back to the family mm. and you have shabbat and if you're if you're more religious then you know then the saturday is taken up with all of that if you're not you know like i was brought up then you know you got party on saturday nights again but there is this thing um uh, there is this pattern i, I know it's there mm. and it gives meaning to my life um even if i don't believe in judaism or even if i don't believe mm-hmm. in god or whatever these these things travel with us as as yeah. part of our cultures and and, what. and it's really interesting um uh like Okay, so I'm like a die-hard fan of Nietzsche. <laughs> I was listening guy. to a I'm podcast about it, it today, it telling Alfie how I'm not in the momentum of listening to this depth of philosophy anymore. After an hour of listening about the concept of death and meaning-making, I think I took away six words. <laughs> <laughs> He's the David Beckham of philosophy. That's all I'm saying. All right? He's so cool! Um... <laughs> so so most people will many people will know that he's the guy famous mm-hmm. for saying god is dead 
um, and and what what he what he did that was so significant was he he made these arguments that said what we think in the West as being universal truths about morality and many other things uh, are simply not universal. If you look at people in other cultures and things like that, they don't hold those things. They've got other things, right? and um, and so you know, uh, God died. What people don't talk about is what uh, um, when they refer to to Nietzsche and him saying this kind of thing is that is the beginning mm-hmm. of a paragraph mm-hmm. of text, and what he says after that is now what are we going to do? Now that we have put ourselves mm. on the throne, yeah. how are we going to bring to the world all, mm-hmm. all of that? Right? And, and we still haven't figured mm-hmm. that out, the West. The West still hasn't figured that out. Um, and if you look at um, existentialism, they're like, they're, they're, they're four fundamental human needs or, or, for, or four fundamental human forms of angst like mm-hmm. psychic pain internal pain that, that, that human beings can, can experience and it's things like um, the minute God is out of the picture you realize that you have absolute freedom and, and that freedom yes. is a burden and it creates mm-hmm. anxiety it creates like a Am I a good person? Am I a bad person? Should I have done this? Should I have done that? So, you know, the minute you're not following the book, then it's like, oh my God, this is my responsibility. Yeah. And like, we're not equipped yeah. for it. <laughs> then there are things like our inherent isolation. So even though you can be in a room full of your friends and there's, there's a part of you that knows, or even with a lover, there's a part of you that knows that Nobody mm-hmm. knows you. Mm-hmm. Like you, 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 you know, we feel our aloneness in a very mm. profound way. And, and, and all of that stuff, words like angst and whatnot, and it's all become like uncool to talk about that. But those words have actually come into psychology and they, they're still, these things are still discussed. They're framed in a different way. But here's the thing about meaning, right? So existentialism is, 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 the really pedestrian kind of describing it, or the pop, pop word describing it. Like, oh, existentialism is all about where is the meaning in life? And how should we live our lives if there's no afterlife? You know, like, where's the meaning if we're just going to die? Mm. That's it. Um, so, of those four, like, things that happen when, when um, the, these fundamental uh, forms of anxiety and serious crazy stuff that we can go through um, uh, it's interesting that they map directly to four equivalent things that religion Mm. requires unfortunately I can't remember (laughs) but let's say for example um, freedom right if you if you follow the Ten Commandments if you follow the morality of, of, of your religion and most of them are actually good um, uh, it takes away that that thing, right? um, or at least it it it, it, it yeah. assists. Like mm. you've got to fall back, you know. Or if you are really going through a serious crisis, and uh, you can go and speak to 
you know, the, 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 the priest or the whatever, yeah. you know, um, and, and, and they can bring to bear that kind of thing. Or this idea of being fundamentally alone, um, going to church every Sunday or doing Shabbat, you, you know, you become part of the community. And that mm-hmm. makes a huge difference. Like, if you think of, like, one of the biggest problems we have in the world is this urbanization thing where you don't yeah. have neighbors and you're on your own, yeah. you know. You, like, people, you know, pay lip service to, to acknowledging you. But if, like, in addiction, right, what's the first people do when they pick up that a person is kind of going down that road? Distance themselves. They run a mile. Yeah, yeah man, because, like, even, like, if you've got the best intentions, if you try and help an addict, they're just going to suck you down into, like, a world yeah. of shit. And we all know that, right? So it's like, okay, sorry, dude. Mm-hmm. at that point you know, in that journey and and um, so you know if you're a young person you've moved to a new city you're at university you're struggling to cope maybe whatever you know and then it's very easy you know you end up isolated um, and it doesn't even need to be drugs you can just be yeah. miserable because you don't know yeah. stuff like that so you know there's a like, I grew up in a very, um, or, 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 yeah, I mean, me and my friends, we were uh, atheist or agnostic, and we were very quick to kind of go, ah, you know, we're not into religion, whatever. It wasn't mm-hmm. cool to be into religion. And it was apartheid. We were at school and university during apartheid, so it's like the way Christianity had been used yeah. as, a, as a part of apartheid and as part of a justification justifying logic of so much of it. And, and like, no, we're, it's okay that we treat other human beings like this because God has said it's okay to happen. Um, uh, made us, when we were young, be very quick to go, religion is bad, like, uh, and it's mm-hmm. old-fashioned and whatnot. But as I get older, it's kind of like, these are profound structures of meaning which mm-hmm. are in the world, which make the world very, very rich. Yeah. By which I do not mean I'm going back to Shul on Saturday. By which I mean a big hole was created in, in the world and science ain't enough mm-hmm. to fill to mm-hmm. it. You know? Um, like there is feeling, human meaning yeah. stuff. And so there, so those are all, in my opinion, examples of why yeah. it's important. And that's when we go to Jason's on the job. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I, th- I think you're definitely right, and I mean, if you if you look at you know most twelve step programs, if not all, like one of the things that's that's been consistent in recovery is some sort of a religious activity. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that any specific one of them is the thing that's going to cure you, but it's usually a tool that can definitely help in that yeah. um, process of recovery, and. I think it, it it is what you said. It's not necessarily that, you know, you now have to do X, Y, and Z, but rather it's having a structure of meaning that you can use to undergird your life. And I think, you know, as you mentioned, that's the thing that's extremely important in in what in what essentially well structured IA to call to call those things um well structured IA I think is maybe re- I wouldn't say reducing them, but putting them in a in a very small box. Um, <clears throat> but I think what it does do is it 
maybe contrasts or or highlights the value of sort of being intentional about the way you think about the things, both the things that we're creating, but also the things that we're taking part in. Um, because it is, yeah. it is very easy to kind of just almost subconsciously do the things that are in front of you and live your life almost in like a autopilot way. Um, and I think as we've kind of covered in, in yeah. most of this conversation, the being intentional about each aspect is a way that we can actually sort of um, address some of these wicked problems, be they, be they s small um, or big. Um, and I think we will we'll probably be, be sort of heading towards the, the, the closing stages of this discussion. But... Um, no, I yeah. well, we, it's the closing stages, so there's still time to say things. Um, but I think one of the things for me that's, that's, that's really, really stood out about this discussion, and I don't know if you want to comment on it at all, is the idea that meaning is the underlying almost value because because it's it's almost like thrice abstracted you know if we think we, like we spoke a little bit about the the information and the the sort of different disciplines of knowledge and then we spoke about in a sense information architecture which is a thing that almost sorts and structures all of that and then we spoke about meaning at the third level which is the underlying almost framework that we use to categorize that information via ia and in a sense, it's so, because it's, you know, thrice removed, it's so difficult to actually make that logical journey to actually um, concretize meaning into your day to day. I think it's so great that we managed to um, manage to get there, even though it might have been a little bit roundabout. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Stumbling, <laughs> tripping, yeah. but it's like but crawling <laughs> to the finish line. It's like, I think we did it. Like, like <laughs> the monsters. A good, a good discussion is a gut dis about meaning is a discussion where you get to meaning. And so I think, I think we did a good job. It's like that menu <laughs> metaphor, right? We have to get through the starters and the mains to get to the dessert. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you, you can't have the dessert first. You have to add those vegetables, young person. Yeah. <laughs> Just the way it is. Um, but yeah. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's really been so much fun chatting with you guys. Like we've gone from like the sublime to the ridiculous to the um, serious things to not yeah. so serious things. And this is very much how I think about like, what I do and whatnot. Like, one of the reasons why I love what I do is because it's, like, it's just a lovely big mix of things like that. Yeah. You know? It's like I wouldn't want to just do practice or just do theory. And I wouldn't just want to do IA or just want to do UX or whatever. And, uh, like we're very lucky to have these kinds mm -hmm. of careers mm -hmm. and, and to have such access to it, like, particularly in South Africa. Because like I... It, it's really difficult, like um, in like the developed world, you can't. It's not. You can't just like. It's not as easy to just find an opportunity at the university to be a part-time lecturer or have somebody like Terence usher me into a world of, of, of theory mm -hmm. writing, as well as be a practitioner. Because like in those places, it's mm -hmm. so competitive that you're lucky just to get mm -hmm. a lecturing job. You know, and then once you've got that, you need to really be top of your game. You don't have time to also be a practitioner mm. and to be, like do your own independent research mm -hmm. and stuff. 
but here, you know, we tend to be more generalist, mm-hmm. um, which goes hand in hand with a more developing kind of mm-hmm. environment. And, you know, uh, because there's a huge brain drain and there's a lack of resource a lot of the time in, in South Africa, all you need to do is put up your hand and somebody will mm-hmm. give you a chance, yeah. you know, because, and it's a, it's a real, it's, 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 a, it's a real special thing. There are many special things about being in a, a developing place as opposed to mm-hmm. a developed place. Mm. But that's one of them, I, I find. And there's lots one can get involved with in terms of design uh, very easily. Uh, and then you have all this variety. You learn new things. And it's a nice, it's a nice career. And if you're into digital design, it's not going anywhere. It just get, just remains interesting. Mm. So I think we're very fortunate. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> all right. Um, yeah, I think I think this this has been this has been a, a a long journey, but I think a very important one. Um, and as you mentioned, we've we've talked about the sublime, and we've talked about the irreverent, and we've talked about the funny and the interesting. Um, and hopefully, the people listening along um, who've come come along with us on this journey have have been able to pull out something valuable. But if not, I know I have. Um, this has really been a a, a great conversation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and thank you for making the time. Um, I've loved every minute of it, and I think you guys are awesome. Thank you. I mean, you guys are super cool. I love you. Thank show. you so much. Thanks so much, Jason. Maybe. Yeah, this was a really, really great conversation. And Alfie, I, I don't know how we can even think that no one would take any meaning <laughs> or value out of this conversation. There are ways we can make them. We can make them jealous. <laughs> We can make them jealous. So even though we're having this conversation far away from each other, we're going to meet up for drinks now and carry on the conversation. We're going to have drinks and heroin. And, you know, if anybody wants to join us, it's a great time. Now they're going to be like, I don't want to be there. You're going to miss out on all the meaning. Yeah, the meaning. I was just kidding about the heroin. But um, maybe, Jason, um, before we do sort of um, wrap this up, if there are people who are a little bit more interested in, you know, some of your writings, some of your work, and as you sort of go along on your journey, where would you, you know, suggest that they kind of follow your, your work? There is a website called um, uh, www.jh-0.com and it's got all my stuff. Amazing. Amazing. So we'll definitely... And no. hundreds. We'll definitely um, link the website below. And to everybody um, listening who have come this this far on the journey, thank you very much. And we hope that you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you.